0: Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. This week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at CrossFit Autobody, located in Union City. CrossFit Autobody is the perfect place to begin your fitness journey. Come in and become part of the CrossFit community. Visit uccrossfitautobody.com for more information. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and heritage park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. On today's episode, Scott sits down with John Glad-Castelaw from Crockett County, Tennessee. After serving 36 years in the United States Marine Corps, he returned back home to his family farm, where he is now involved in the technological advances of farming today. And later, join us as we discover something new here at Discovery Park of America.
1: Hello, hello. I am Scott Williams. Welcome to Real Foot Forward, where every single week we explore the culture, the spirit, the accomplishments, and the heritage of West Tennessee, just like we do every single day here at our Museum and Heritage Park in Union City, Tennessee. My guest today is John Castellaw. He's currently co-founder and chief executive officer of Farm Space Systems, LLC, a provider of drone services and equipment, but he has an illustrious a career that you'll hear all about. And we also have a personal connection in that my great-grandfather and his grandfather were brothers. So welcome, John.
2: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Scott. So tell me a little
1: bit about where you're from, um, full circle. Let's start from the beginning, how you started out, and then we'll go through what you did and then how what you're doing now.
2: Sure. I, you know, I grew up, Uh, on the family farm in Crockett County uh, near Crockett Mills, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I uh, went to Hamlet Robertson High School and unfortunately my mother was a teacher Mm. at Hamlet Robertson and so, you know, uh, if I did anything wrong at school, I'd get spanked at school and then they'd go say, hey Betty, you know what he did today? And uh, and so when I got home, I would get spanked again. You know, it was double (laughs) jeopardy (laughs) uh, for doing that. But, and then I, uh, uh, when I graduated, uh, I knew I was uh, wanted to go to, to college, and uh, that really the only uh, uh, place I wanted to go was UT Martin. Oh, great. And yeah, a so, lot of UT Martin yeah, folks around yeah, yeah. here. Really, uh, really enjoyed uh, UT Martin. Uh, uh, back then also uh, uh, you had two years of mandatory ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, and so that gave me another little impetus to uh, toward the military. And I had a buddy, I played uh, uh, freshman basketball at UTM, and uh, a buddy of mine said, Hey, Glad, the Marine Corps has got this great deal. I said, They'll pay you 100 bucks a month while you're in school, they'll give you a summer job, and you don't have to do this ROTC stuff because that fulfilled the military op- obligation for what was then a land grant university that UT Martin was. And so I signed up, and uh, and what you did is you do two six-week uh, classes at OCS and Quantico. And I did the first one, and you know, it was pretty tough, you know, do a lot of running, physical fitness and everything. And I came back and met my buddy, and he said, hey, you know what they did to me this year? And I said, well, I know what they did to me. <laughs> and he said, I quit. <laughs> So the guy got me into it. Quit. Quit. But I, you know, I enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, I liked the the military uh, life, and so I uh, stuck with it. Went back for the next uh, six week uh, class the next year, and then I was commissioned when I graduated. And by that time, I'd just gotten married and to Wanda, and I said, I made the first promise to her that I ever broken. I said. Honey, three years, and we're back on the farm because oh. my degree was in agriculture, and I always intended to be a farmer. Yeah. So uh, we packed our things up in a uh, U-Haul trailer, drove to Quantico, and started our life. Uh, that ended up being 36 years in the Marine Corps. And she was from Obayan. She is yeah, from Obayan you know, she, County. She, oh, you know, she's from Hopin
1: Oh. You ever heard of Hop I, I have not, but these other folks in here may Hop have. In,
2: uh, was a little grocery store right on the uh, O'Bian River. Okay. And it, it also sold beer and everything, so it was a really popular place. you know. <laughs> and, but she lived about a half a mile away, you know, and the first time I went, ever went to see her, I uh, <clears throat> pick her up. You know, I, I go down this good blacktop road and then a gravel road, and then I end up uh, on a dirt road, and I come out in this uh, – this uh, uh, holla uh, right there, not far from the river, and there's a house. And I go up and said, "Hey, I'm lost. Uh, you know, can you tell me where Wanda Nelson lives?" And he looks at me and said, "Right here, boy." <laughs> so I said, "That's how we started
1: out." Yeah, but that was uh, that was uh, intimidating, especially yeah. since he had the store in town. Yeah. Um, so well,
2: actually, he didn't have the store, but uh, but the other people did.
1: So um, 36 years you were. Um, Uh, In the military, I I don't want to spend too much time running through all the things you did, but just to hit the surfaces, you served with the UN during the siege of Sarajevo. You commanded the American force in the multinational security and stability operation in East Timor. You were the chief of staff for the U.S. Central Command at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You commanded Marine Medium Helicopter Squadron 264. And you were with the Pentagon as the head of Marine Aviation, and then you oversaw the Marine Corps budget. That's just some of the highlights from a very esteemed career. Um, what are some of your uh, highlights that that you remember when you think back to that career? What 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 does it uh, mean to you?
2: Well, uh, I guess one of the the most enjoyable times I had was something uh, not mentioned was I was my first job was as a platoon commander. When I got in, they said, hey, what do you want to be? And again, I'm going back to the farm. I came from the farm. I was a John Deere guy. I said, give me something big and green, runs old diesel, makes a lot of smoke and noise. So they put <laughs> me in Marine Corps armor. So I did a tour in tracks. So I was a amphibious tractor platoon commander oh, wow. in the 3rd Marine Division. And uh, had 42 privates and PFCs, uh, two or three corporals, a sergeant and a, and a gunny. And That was where I learned the basics of uh, leadership. You know, being in ROTC and uh, being in Alpha Gamma Row at uh, UT Martin and other stuff gave me some of the basic experiences, but then that's what really got me going uh, was when I was a platoon commander. And then uh, I was stationed with a tank outfit in uh, San Diego at uh, Miramar, Uh, you know, Top Gun. Oh, yeah. Everything. yeah. And all these aircraft were flying over my uh, head, and I said, heck, why not? So I applied for flight school and became an aviator. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, squadron commander, and uh, I commanded the Marine Corps version of Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did uh, uh, a Marine aircraft wing, 300 aircraft, 15,000 people, uh, which was really a, a challenge and I enjoyed.
1: Yeah. Now, and, uh, this whole time, did you keep your farm in Crockett oh, yeah, County, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. did I, you know, make it
2: back? And I always intended to come back, you know. And uh, our plans were to come back here, and and that's what we did. Yeah, you probably learned a lot of uh, skills and
1: attributes here in West Tennessee that you applied during during your career
2: um, that contributed to your success. Well, uh, when we talked about leadership, you know, you know, I one of the the things that was constantly hammered into me by uh, my father was, boy, you got to be humble, mm-hmm. you know. And the, in the Marine Corps, uh, we have a saying that troops eat first, mm. and uh, the leaders eat last. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you put other people ahead of you, mm-hmm. and you make sure that that they're taken care of before you see to yourself. And uh, the the element of that that I, that I was first introduced to was from my father when mm-hmm. I was on the farm working with uh, various people and doing stuff, and then and then um,
1: you have continued the agriculture aspects. Yeah, you know, your your original love of agriculture, uh, you have continued to work in that arena today.
2: Yeah, and and I tell you where uh, when I was in the in the military, I also had an opportunity to to be involved or, or, or see the importance of, of agriculture, and it's had a great impact on me. Uh, I spent a lot of time in uh, the Horn of Africa, uh, places like uh, Eritrea and Djibouti and, and Kenya and so forth. And uh, what we were doing there during uh, uh, the war was, uh, you know, we were in Afghanistan, we were in Iraq, we are in other places, and so we had to do a economy of force operation is what we call it in the military where we use minimum assets or resources to achieve our goals. And one of those goals was to ensure that in Djibouti and in the area around there that, uh, that it was not a, uh, a growing ground for uh, insurgents and to keep things um, uh, stable there. And the most uh, effective task force that uh, I saw operating during that time was made up of a well-drilling team uh, from Guam National Guard and a veterinarian uh, detachment from Georgia. Well, why is that important? Why does that support our mission? Well, you you look at what the economy is based on in that part of the world, and it's goats. Mm. And then you look at how the... uh, uh jobs are divided up. Uh, women are responsible in the village for getting the water. So twice a day, women go get the water to cook and wash and do all that stuff. And uh, one of the, the problems is sometimes the, the well is outside of town. So, you know, they have to walk miles, to to get the water twice a day. It's hot, tough. And, uh, of course, you know, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So, <laughs> uh, right. you know. We learned that uh, in West Tennessee, too. There you too. go. Uh, and then, uh, so you take that well drilling team and you go in and you drill wells that are close to town so the, the ladies don't have to walk a long way and, you know, it helps them, makes them, their life uh, more tolerable. And then you take that veterinarian uh, team and you uh, vaccinate the goats and the mortality rate among the offspring is lowered. Uh, they become more uh, viable. They produce more uh, milk. They produce more meat. And so what you do is you increase the uh, economic viability of that community, and when you do that, you put confidence in the government, mm. and that allows you to uh, not have the growth of, a, of an environment that would uh, support insurgency. Wow. That's
1: um, fascinating, the, the role that agriculture plays in the bigger picture that a lot of people would never even think about. Um You're doing a lot now in the area of uh, technology and drones, and, you know, we here at Discovery Park of America are all about innovation and, you know, fascinated by that as well. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you think of the role of technology is for
2: agriculture going forward. Well, you know, the military has provided a lot of the uh, technology that, uh, that we're using nowadays, you know. A GPS was created uh, by the military so that we during the Cold War so that we could lob thermonuclear warheads into Red Square with a mm. great accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so look at it now you got it on your phone and wasn't very common when I was in, you know, I'd, I'd go across cross countries in my helicopter and uh, I'd, you know I'd, I'd get momentarily disoriented uh, so you know what I'd do is go down and read the names off the water tank to figure out where I was. Um, but, of course, with GPS, you know everybody's knows where they are uh, all the time. So, uh, you know, that technology continues. When I was uh, chief of staff at CENTCOM, whether I was at uh, Tampa, which is the rear headquarters, or uh, Ford headquarters in Cutter, uh, I'd go into the um, uh, command center, and I could look up on the walls of the command center, and I could see predator orbits. Uh, I could see information coming in from satellites. I could see reporting from uh, ground stations. Uh, And so what you created there was a situational awareness. You aggregated all this information, and you uh, fused it, and you analyzed it, and then you acted on it. Okay, And so when I got out and, and I started looking at agriculture, and, and by the way, the, when it really came to me, I, I was working for a company that, uh, that had a bunch of uh, uh, tractors and farming a lot of acres, and uh, I had a demonstration of a competing uh, uh, tractor company come in. And I got into a, uh, um, a sprayer, one of these sprayers that you see around all the time. And it was like getting in the cockpit of my aircraft, Hmm. (laughs) except it had more computing power. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You know, you'd auto steer. And what really got me and, and got me thinking about this was you could spray a swath and then come back over it at an angle. And as you came back over it at an angle the booms, the, the uh, nozzles on the booms started cutting off as you went where you'd been. It knew where you'd been, even though you didn't. And when you came out the other side, it turned them on again. And then the links, you know, with tractors and, and equipment are sending information back to an uh, aggregating platform. It says, you know, I'm here. This is where I am. This is the condition of the uh, equipment. Uh, you know, this is how much fuel I got left. You know, all that information, I said, hmm, you know, there's, this is a lot like having, you know, armored units out there, uh, you know, with people using drones, you know, flying, getting information, whether it's uh, on a battlefield or a farm field. And so I started looking around, and yeah, you know, we've got some aggregating platforms out there with, you know, uh, folks like Tennessee uh, Farmers Co-op. You know these others, uh, CPS and all. I have aggregating platforms that serve the same purpose as that command center. So you know you have uh, the capability to to bring into that uh, platform. You know the the soil types, uh, the images, the yield history, and you put it there where you can look at it and analyze it. uh, You know moisture information, and then if you need. uh, Information you can, you know, send a drone out or look at a satellite imagery, and then it allows you to make decisions. When I was uh, uh farming in the 60s and growing up, you know, I put 500 pounds of 61212 on that farm, and it didn't matter whether it was the flatlands or the hills, right? Okay, now I can get down just about to the square feet, I'm managing down to that level. Whereas when I was growing up, it was the entire farm, and so when you do that, you reduce the amount of uh, resources that you put into this. You reduce the amount of fuel. You reduce the amount of fertilizer. And of course, you know, in this day and time, uh, you know, nitrogen runoff is a big deal. So you got to use the the Goldilocks principle: just the right amount of the right stuff at the right place at the right time. Mm. And and so that's what what this is all about with technology. You know, I I love to go out and talk to uh, the young farmers. Uh, Those guys are are really getting it. They understand, uh, you know, that this is where you got to go because, you know, the expenses always, always grow faster than what your revenue is. And so you've got to constantly be able to, uh, to reduce the amount of expenditures you're putting in it to maximize your profits. <laughs> One of the great things that you know we've been doing, uh, working with uh, uh, Winfield, uh, which is a land of legs company, uh, Winfield's uh, crop services support, is that we've been flying over their uh, plots. They will have 15 or 20 acres, and, and they've got it all over the United States. And all, on those 15 or or 20 acres, they've got 1,200 plots or so, mm-hmm. and those plots are you know about five feet wide by about 32 feet long, and we can fly over those plots and count the plants that are in each one of those 1,200 plots and tell them, give them a map that has a number for each plot of the plants that are that are growing there. So you know those are the. Uh, uh, the type of technology capabilities uh, that you have now and in, in, in starting to see it embraced. One of the problems in this day and time is with uh, commodity prices tanking in 2013, 2014, it's really tough on the farmers now to, uh, to uh, bring a lot of this technology in.
1: What um, another aspect of, of uh, farmers are having to deal with are the tariffs. Um, what are your thoughts on the impact you know, do you have any thoughts
2: on the impact um, of the tariffs on farmers today? You know, I'm a free market guy. You know, I, I, I don't like tariffs. Uh, I think they are, uh, in the long run, and particularly they're also in the short run, they're counterproductive. Uh, I, as I uh, uh, look at my business, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, as of 1 September, a lot of the equipment uh, that we're using and, uh, and selling – uh, had a fifteen percent increase, and that had a had a uh, immediate impact on on our business. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not in, in favor of tariffs. I, I think there are other ways uh, to deal with this. Uh, uh, we have had good uh, uh, impact from folks like you know Parks Wells at the Soybean Association. Uh, you know, the, I've uh, met with uh, the national leadership. They're, they've worked so hard over the years to develop markets. And when something like this happens, uh, then uh, folks uh, in other countries look for other places to, to buy the stuff that they, they want. And then we have to start all over again reestablishing uh, the markets and all. So that's where I am on, tar- on yeah. tariffs. That makes sense. I've I've seen
1: I've seen you speak on that subject and a lot of others. Um, one in particular that is uh, in the agriculture business in the agriculture business today um, is the lack of food that could potentially be available in 2050 as the population grows and other changes in agriculture. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of agriculture?
2: <clears throat> I am on. Uh Board of Directors for a um, uh, organization in Washington, D.C., and it does uh, contracts and support of the U.S. Agency for International Development. And so I get to travel overseas. Uh, uh, in the last uh, couple of years, I've been to the Central African Republic. Uh, uh, I've been to Qatar. Uh, I've been to Cuba. Uh, I've been to Israel. Uh, Rwanda and and uh, even Australia Uh, and you know what we're uh, what we're seeing is that uh, uh, there is a growing need for food overseas particularly in Africa you've got about 60 percent of the population that's under 24 you've got a tremendous uh rate of unemployment uh Agriculture is one of the ways that, that we have to, or one of the areas we have to improve the technology overseas as well. <laughs> one of the things I did when I was in Asia was uh, uh, deputy uh, three Marine Expeditionary Force, and so I got to do a lot of representation for the U.S. military. And I went down to Panape, which is the Federated Republic of Micronesia and uh, to, at an uh, inauguration of the president there. And I was talking to uh, the senior diplomat uh, assigned there, and uh, I said, hey, you know, pretty interesting here. What are the issues? He said, well, you know, we were, uh, this country was occupied by the Japanese during World War II, and they taught them how to fish and grow rice and all. When we came in, we taught them how to open the cans. When you go to the supermarkets, there are rows and rows of spam and other stuff. Mm. They've developed a uh, uh, tremendous health challenge with diabetes and obesity and, and other work, uh, other problems. So, you know, when we go into countries, we need to focus on helping them uh, create. The capability to grow their own food. There are areas where we can supply, like, you know, there's the uh, Soybean Association has a partnership in uh, Guyana where they're uh, 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 providing uh, soybeans and expertise to, to feed them to a, a growing <laughs> poultry industry. You know, there are areas that we can both benefit, but by giving them the capability to employ their people and to grow their food, What we do, again, is support our own security. It prevents that country from becoming unstable. It prevents that country from uh, shedding a bunch of uh, refugees that will uh, destabilize neighboring countries. Eventually, all of that impacts us. Mm -hmm. And so having that ag technology shared with other uh, countries, with other people, is in our national security interest as Mm. well. Mm. And so, you know, folks uh, at USAID uh, know that uh, there's a new guy there by the name of Green, Mark Green, who's doing a tremendous job. Uh, uh, What he wants to see is USAID go out of business, and they go out of business when that country has their own capabilities.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, nobody's thought more about drones probably in the world than, than you have. So, so what, what I, for whatever reason, drones are fascinating to me. There was one the other day I was taking my garbage out and I heard, and I looked up and a, a drone was just like flying right past my house. You know, I followed it for a little ways, um, but I was fascinated by this future you know of drones all up in the sky delivering packages and you know what what is it is that going to happen
2: well you know <laughs> we have a great FAA uh, federal aviation administration uh, who's responsible to make sure that uh, the airspace and airspace start, starts that they control uh, from just above the ground on up And so, you know, the biggest challenge is going to be able to keep them from running into each other and to other things. Right. Uh, And so right now we've made great strides. Uh, You know, you can can get a a drone uh, that uh, will not run into a wall because it has sensors that detects that wall and prevents the aircraft from running into it. But unfortunately, that doesn't prevent somebody says, "Hey, you know I don't want to do it anyway or you know I want, I, you know, I don't like this. So turning it off and running into that wall anyway, right. Uh, so uh, the basic thing that we need to do now is make sure we professionalize uh, drone operations. Uh, that people understand that this is an aircraft. Even though there's nobody in it and you're uh, flying it on the ground, You know, you've got the same responsibilities as somebody in the front end of a 727 or, you know, airliner. Is that you've got to follow the rules. You've got to ensure that it uh, maintains uh, safe distances from other uh, aircraft and objects and that uh, that you don't harm people. Uh, You know, one of the, the terrible things, as you see, is, is drones flying over, you know, high school football games and others. And, you know, if that thing falls and again, you know, (laughs) I tell people the only time that I ever thought I had too much gas was when I was on fire and trying to get to the ground. You know, (laughs) if anything, it flies, the potential exists that something's going to happen and uh, and it's going to need to land. So, you know, there are rules that you need to observe in order to, to be able to safely introduce capabilities like delivering packages. And I think we're a little ways away from that right now. Yeah, like the self-driving car. We're a a little ways
1: away, but maybe we'll get there eventually.
2: The person is always the weakest link.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the headline. If we were doing a newspaper article, we would put that as the headline. So you uh, spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C., going back and forth. A lot of West Tennessee people go visit Washington, D.C., so you know the city really well. Uh, What is your favorite restaurant when you go back?
2: (laughs) My favorite restaurant is Ceriso's. It's an Italian Mm -hmm. bistro that's uh, right on the bank of uh, Rock Creek Park uh, and uh, uh, just down from the uh, Marriott and Omni there on... Connecticut Avenue. Where okay,
1: all the, all the listeners need to put that on their list for for when they go visit Washington <laughs> yeah. D.C.,
2: the nation's capital. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, come say hello to us. You know, I. Uh, you know, Craig Fitzhugh is a uh, you know, former represent, state representative. Uh, you know, lives in Dyesburg. and and I uh, was sitting in front of our condo in Adams Morgan in D.C. one time, and I had my UT Martin cap on, <laughs> and this guy comes walks by and he said, "Hey." here you know about UT Martin? I said, yeah, you know, I'm a proud graduate of UT Martin. He said, do you know who my father is? It's Craig Fitchu. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, I know Craig. But uh, yeah, I see a lot of folks that uh, come in up there.
1: And, yeah, there are a lot of uh, West Tennessee expats yeah. living up there, Yeah, yeah. Um, hanging out yeah. in D.C.
2: Yeah, but I enjoy uh, being up there. Uh, uh, we're going up this weekend. Uh, I'll be be up uh, I work with uh, an organization up there out of George Washington University that it uh, deals with climate security and uh, so I'll be over on the hill. Uh, I think on the 24th uh, we'll be uh, uh, interacting with uh, congressional staffers and all talking about climate security and, and the impact on our national security. Thank you, first of all, for serving the
1: country so bravely for for decades, and thank you for the agriculture work that you're doing, and thank you for doing our podcast today.
2: Well, thank you, but the real hero of the Castello family is not me, is my wife, Wanda. She moved us 25 times in 36 years. Wow. You know, and all the time uh, working outside the home, raising our son when I was— uh, On deployments uh, she's the one that allowed me to to have fun fly aircraft and and do the things that uh, that I did in support of our great nation so thank you
1: and now with a little discovery for all of us is Andrew Gibson who's sharing a bit of the behind the scenes of Discovery Park of America Thank you, Scott. I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at beautiful Discovery Park of America. And today I am with Zach Gray, uh, our in-house historian, who will be sharing with us a story about one of our artifacts we have on display here uh, in our beautiful 1800 settlement, um, which is located on our uh, north side of the park. Uh, So Zach, take it away. Tell us about what artifact we're talking about.
3: Well, the artifact in particular that I'm talking about or will be talking about is our Covered wagon that we have out in our settlement. It's over by the um, the barn where you can go see the tool shed and other other artifacts over there. Um, the covered wagon, especially during that time period, which would be in the eighteen uh, around the eighteen thirties to eighteen seventies, was used primarily to get a person from one place to the other. Um, particularly if you want to talk about it with the Oregon Trail, people use these wagons to transport their entire lives. To a new home. Um, a lot of times they would use the two popular kinds of wagons were the, uh, the, Constoga, the let me give it right, the Constoga ca- uh, wagon and then also the prairie Scro- schooner. The prairie schooner was called that because it actually looked, people said it looked like a boat, a sailboat with its white um, cover. These wagons, could carry quite a bit. The tra- the travel going over there was very um, treacherous. They could um, die very easily, and a lot of people did die from this trip. So they had to take a lot of their different supplies, um, particularly food, ammunition, weapons, and you know whatever else you wanted to take, like your bed and other things. Typically, these wagons could carry around. Uh, a little over 2,000 pounds, you would typically carry around 200 pounds of flour to make you know, biscuits, hardtack, other things like that. You'd take sugar, bacon, coffee, salt, and then other things. These wagons were stacked full of your life. Um, and that also meant no room for you to sit. It was pulled by either ox or um, horses, and you'd be walking beside your wagon the entire time. Uh, these people walked all the way from, if you we were talking about the Oregon Trail, they walked from the Independence, Missouri, all the way over to Oregon, which, like I said before, was an over 2,000-mile journey. They would only go 15 miles a day. So this was a four to six month journey. So you could not plan this halfway. You had to make sure you took the time to plan this out correctly because let's say you didn't have enough food. Well, you're going to starve. Or let's say you actually packed too much. Well, your animals might end up suffering from overweighted carts or when you had to cross a river. You have to take off, sometimes they took off the wheels, put them onto ferries and took them across or waded across in the water. So if they're too heavy, they could sink. There goes all your livelihood. Um, And typically with these wagons, they would be in what they would call wagon trains. A typical wagon train was around 30 wagons or less, but there are some of upwards of 200 wagons in a singular wagon train. So it's really they took so many wagons because it was a um, greater number could keep you safe, Um, whether that be from animals, um, Native Americans who would attack them. Not all of them did, but there were some tribes that did attack the settlers going west. Um, But with these wagons, another issue was you have all your livelihood in this one wagon. Well, you're also condensed in the way you're surviving around a lot of people. And one of the biggest killers going across was not the environment, but it was disease. And also uh, the second biggest one was a gun accidents. But so you better hope, uh, better hope you uh, can make it all the way there and you're very healthy. So
1: you you keep saying there Uh, in a lot of these situations, where was there?
3: There was typically Oregon City. Um, They would go all the way out west, um, all the way to the other side of the country. They went some to California, some to Oregon, some even to um, um, New Mexico, when Mexico seceded Texas and the other states down there um, to the United States. It was basically people having the having the opportunity to make a better life for their family. Um, these people did not take it very lightly in the way that they packed up their entire livelihood, sold their houses, sold whatever they couldn't put on this cart. Because like I said, this cart only fit around 2,500 pounds. So that means if you can't take sorry, grandmother's family heirloom, you might not be you might have to, might have to leave it behind or sell it to be able to pay for the animals. The one thing I forgot to mention not only did they have all their livelihood as in their material goods, they had to take their animals with them. so we're looking at there are some estimates of Two hundred or more cattle and over like in the thousands of sheep and other animals going along with them while they're making this trek or this trek so they can you're talking about it'd be an amazing sight to see this enormous wagon train with all of these animals going along the way going west and like I said going towards like the Oregon Trail ended up leaving Oregon City at the time, and then they would go off from there. Zach,
1: thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, thank you all for listening to today's episode uh, of Real Foot Forward a West Tennessee podcast. We hope to see you here at beautiful Discovery Park of
2: America real soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates.